Welcome to Media Path. I am Louise Palenker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. You know, it's a good time of year for both joy and reflection. We recommend a fire, a glass of nog, a Hallmark movie, even if you have to enjoy those pleasures at someone else's house because you don't have a fireplace or a Hallmark subscription. Just clean up after yourself and leave when the people who live there start walking around and turning off all the lights. If you're still there when they unplug the tree, you have overstayed. Uh, Today we welcome perfect guests who give of themselves all year long. We will be talking with California Assemblymember Laura Friedman, who is running for Adam Schiff's seat in Congress as he runs for Senate. I do hope he leaves her some snacks behind in his desk. But first, we will be welcoming Roxy Manning and Sarah Payton, who have written The Anti-Racist Heart, a self-compassion and activism handbook, which combines cutting-edge neuroscience with ways to help us build Martin Luther King Jr.'s vision of beloved community. We will get to Roxy and Sarah directly after Fritz and I share some news and some recommendations. So what have you got for us? Oh, I have good stuff to read. Yeah. As we commence the final episode of the year, I just want to say thanks for a great and wonderful 2023 Media Path listeners. Your support in this past year has us charting on Apple Podcasts around the world in Mexico, Ireland, Denmark, Portugal, and the Philippines. We also did great on Good Pods, where we're appearing on their leaderboards. Number 21 in the Top 100 Indie Politics Monthly Chart. Number 25 in the Top 100 Indie Books Monthly Chart. Number 39 in the Top 100 Indie TV All-Time Chart. And number 44 on the Billboard Hot 100 behind Sean Cassidy. How do, how do we get there? I'm impressed with We those. also yeah. want to thank those of you who are part of our YouTube community on a clip from our interview with Jerry Mathers and his fantastic mom Joanne Thomas says love him and this show and with regard to bad company drummer Simon Kirk's appearance Vinay Pontes says fantastic drummer criminally underrated that's what I want people to say about me criminally I think underrated. it's great on a business card all of our interviews with these and other iconic guests are available with additional visual content so check it out if you haven't yet and from all of us at Media Path we want to wish you happy holidays and we look forward to bringing you much more in 2024 yeah if you're listening you know go to your tv turn it on the youtube and then you can really say with authority I hate what she's wearing so <laughs> All right, my sister Joanne told me about this one, Fritz. It's called Great Photo, Lovely Life. Amanda Mustard is a renowned photojournalist who returns home to Pennsylvania to film her attempt to confront her grandfather's sexual crimes and her family's involvement, which ranges from victimization to coping to enabling to complicity to silence and the full gamut of resulting generational trauma. Amanda's camera full of sunlight is unflinching, and her courageous wisdom is bold and kind as she confronts her grandfather, Bill, with direct questions about his behaviors and then deftly navigates conversations with her mom, Debbie, about Debbie's choice to place her own child, Amanda's sister, Angie, in a home where Debbie herself had been abused by this man. Her grandfather was a chiropractor with private access to many children. His word bouquet of unrepentant explanations, excuses, and shared responsibility with victims is diabolically narcissistic. Amanda goes through his records and sends letters of apology on behalf of her family to hundreds of victims, offering them an opportunity to give voice to their wounds. One brave woman agrees to take this agonizing journey on film with Amanda. This path, however healing, leads to a truly eerie interaction with the chiropractic facility owners who suggest a prayer circle absolving Bill of his transgressions. 
Our human need for family and mooring is so great that most of us will rearrange the furniture around a household toxin, bury secrets, darkly joke about the sickness, and spritz it with a Febreze of normalcy. Amanda's approach was to pull it all out by the roots. Her film invites conversation but is not recommended for anyone who may be triggered and rewounded by the lack of accountability or contrition from this serial abuser. This is not a film about retribution. It's a film that invites us to explore, examine, and discuss destructive family secrets so that healing can begin. I thought this was a really important film. I did too. And some interesting points was the continuity of dysfunction from one generation to the next. For instance, Amanda's mother kept a secret all of the activity just like her mother did that she blamed her mother for. So these habits, these these things that happen. And also, uh, and you, you described it, what I found so spooky was how, and this must just be the denial that a pedophile can have, where he almost talked about it as if there was nothing wrong. Well, she seemed to enjoy it at the time. She was five, uh, Grandpa. Uh, she was five. And it was, I just thought it was brave and interesting. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm also glad you gave the warning about it because somebody who's had this particular problem in their family, it may turn over a rock that you're not prepared for, but it really is interesting. And it, it's a beautiful piece of filmmaking, which it almost hurts to say on top of the gravity of the subject, but but it is. It is mm-hmm. beautiful filmmaking. Amanda, uh, she did just an exemplary piece of work, and I think it should be watched and discussed by all And Amanda's mission was to get her grandfather to own up to it, and they did that all the way up to two days before the guy died. The guy was infirm. He couldn't even get out of a chair, and they said, come on, Grandpa, isn't there something you want to say to these people? And I, it was... It was brave because, it, because you, you know, she's not just an investigative reporter. This is her grandfather and her mom. So anyway, I want to talk about the prize. Okay. This is an epic quest for oil, money, and power. It's not new. It was on PBS in the 90s, but it's new to me. And it's now an eight-part series on Amazon Prime. And it's a primer on oil being the primary ingredient in all of our foreign policy. It's the ongoing battle between the haves and the have-not countries in the world of oil. Mm. But this series tells us why and how oil is the single most important natural resource. It starts out with the first oil wells in America and around the world. Then it gets into the first oil companies in America like Standard Oil and the ruthless Rockefellers. It then hits the explosion in demand with the invention of the internal combustion engine. I thought the most intriguing episode was the one about World War II, describing how Japan was at such a disadvantage because they have none of their own natural resources, including oil, and Germany tried to develop their own synthetic oil and failed. So oil sort of dictated the outcome of World War II. Then into the discovery of Mideastern oil and how the Gulf countries became the center of global power because of their vast oil reserves. Then the start of OPEC, which put the U.S. at a great disadvantage. And they close out with the new oil order, which goes into how environmental rulings in all countries have started to dampen the oil industry. It's narrated by Donald Sutherland. You'll come away feeling vulnerable at the hands of this black liquid monster. And you'll understand the necessity for us to take power away from oil with renewable resources 
ASAP. It was really well done, I thought. Wow. It, it really is interesting. And just the idea that, you know, at some point, you know, 100 years from now, we could have sort of perpetual motion or just uh, energy that replenishes itself by being energy and look back on these dark days where yeah. we were like digging up neighborhoods and leaving toxic pits behind just for the sake of not just greed, but actual fuel that runs our world. And it's going to have to be a resource that can't be corralled by one country. For instance, mm-hmm. if we use the sun, everybody has the same access to the sun. So I, I think uh, I, I think we're headed that way. Sure, it's taking its time. Yeah, though. I have been told that the sun goes everywhere, correct? <laughs> yes. At various times. So let's welcome our guests. Our first guests are huge healing and discussion fans. Dr. Roxy Manning is a clinical psychologist and certified trainer and assessor for the Center of Nonviolent Communication. Author and neuroscience educator Sarah Payton is a certified trainer of nonviolent communication, and she teaches throughout the world. Together, they have written The Anti-Racist Heart, a self-compassion and activism book. Welcome to you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, one of your core beliefs is that we and our children do not have to suffer shame or guilt in order to learn and grow and improve our ability to understand one another's experiences. Talk about that, if you would. Well, I think the thing that stops us from more than anything else that stops people from moving into just being uh, kind of warriors for justice is shame and um, and the messages that we receive from society that we're too much or that our dreams are too big. And so uh, part of what Roxy and I have done is begun to address that on two fronts. One of them is decreasing shame, and the other is providing really fabulous skills and models for how to have conversations. Yeah, this is a really instructive book. And you're asking your viewers and readers to really dig deep. They have to be really honest with themselves in order for this book to benefit them. So I want to ask you some definitions before we talk a little bit. Uh, First of all, give me your definition of self-compassion. Ooh, that's what we ask people on our podcast. Do you want to start, Rotsi? Sure. I think for me, self-compassion is my capacity to look at myself with full acceptance and to hold care for all of the ways that I'm not showing up in the ways that I might want to and still understand what's leading me to do the things that I'm doing, Um, to connect to kind of like the shared human values that motivate all of our behaviors. And and a lot of people are binary thinkers where they, they, they really have organized their lives around right or wrong. And for them, it, it's even trickier. And and your your thesis is that it's it's usually some sort of trauma that has um, pushed them into that corner where they're unable to see nuance in themselves because it's just too dangerous. They've been scolded or ridiculed or, or shamed, you know, as children that, you you know, you didn't clean up the leaves correctly. And, you know, and, and you left one leaf in the middle of the lawn and now you're a horrible person. So... This is, I think, what's keeping people. But your thesis also is that innate mistrust of others is a survival tool that we are born and talk about how babies can recognize the fa- the faces that are similar to those of their parents. Because I think in ancient times, it, anybody from the outside could be perceived as a threat. So talk about how we can completely remove shame by saying, hey, we're all born with these biases and we just need to work on it, massage it. We're amazing pattern makers. Hmm. Our brains make pattern out of anything. So um, babies are looking for patterns. And the more we show babies different people, 
different different skin colors, different ways of being, different body sizes and shapes, the more comfortable babies are with everybody. But the more a baby has just one thing that they see, the more the baby kind of falls into the idea that that's the most interesting thing, the people who are familiar. So uh, one of the things that Roxy always invites is for us to expand our world. Mm. This can start very early. There was something that you said around the kind of shame that so many of us have. Mm -hmm. And I also want to just really point out that shame is something like the kind of shame, the kind of black, white, right, wrong thinking that you talked about mm -hmm. is something that we've been given to us. It's not something that's inherent in being human. Mm. It's something that in some ways has been foisted on us because it kind of helps us conform. It helps us do things that actually make no sense for human beings. You know, if we just said, hey, you have to sit in a factory and work at a factory 100 hours a week doing the same thing over and over and over again, we would rebel. And so we started to have this kind of sense of shame to force people into these behaviors mm. that actually don't serve life. Mm. And so this is part of what we want to help people return to. Like, how do you connect to what's actually meaningful and joyful for you and do that thing and not act out of shame or guilt? You, you talk about racism and you talk about systemic racism. Tell me the difference. Yeah, so if I think about racism, I think about racism being, you know, I might have um, be doing something that's impacting another person from a specific group because I have a bias against somebody from that group. Unfortunately, in the times that we live in, people have been told, you know, a lot of people have been told right now that people from Mexico are bad. Right. And mm. so they've internalized these kinds of horrific beliefs. And so they might act out of that bias. One person acting from that bias is still doing something that's racist. But when I talk about systemic racism, I mean that we're putting into place policies and rules and systems that affect whole groups of people mm -hmm. wholesale. So when we say, you know, when I talk about, for instance, bias against people from Mexico, an individual person can say, I'm not going to serve you because you're from Mexico. And we see that happening tragically in our country. But then we can also have policies that say we're not going to let people from Mexico into our country. And that's an example of systemic racism, rules that are affecting whole groups of people. You mean people that are poisoning the blood of our nation? <laughs> No, I'm 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 sorry. Well, that's one of the things I, I hope want. you got that reference. I, I did want to touch upon that, Fritz, because I, you know, that is in the news, and we see through through the lessons of history that that folks do better during peaceful periods. But fear and hate stoking works like a narcotic, both for the wounded people spewing it and those receiving it. So, what can we as citizens, and what can our conscientious leaders do in the wake of Trump's hateful speeches, Giuliani's racist accusations, for example. You know, those things are everywhere. And we just react and post it to Twitter. Like, can you believe this person is yelling at a black kid for selling water? Like, we react. But what could we better do? The more that we name what we're seeing and um, speak about what we really want, the more kind of we move everybody towards something better, more, move everybody more towards hope. So one of the things that Roxy and I talk a lot about is beloved community, mm -hmm. holding as a standard the idea that our brains don't have to do othering. That's a default. And we don't have to, we don't have to submit to that. We don't have to submit to believing that people are toxic or bad or 
that they're going to poison our country. We get to have a different idea. We get to have an idea that, for example, immigrants are <laughs> good Lord, all of us, all of us right right now came from a different, our ancestors mm-hmm. came from someplace else, not from this continent. How are we going to decide who's going to bring then, you know, the next great symphony? Who's going to bring the next great invention? What? Where is our spirit of welcome and can do and um, inclusion and joyfulness in terms of bringing people together. As we start to kind of tie into that as a value, then we're, um, I think we're creating antidotes and remedies. Mm-hmm. Jo, what's your thought, Roxy? Yeah, I would add that this idea that so many of us, like we're living in a time of information overload, almost like a time that our brains weren't meant to process. And so Again, part of the, I think the design is that if we can keep pushing this narrative that the only thing you can do is to shame people, say you're a horrible person because you yelled at this child who's selling water on the side of the street, then we stop there. All of a sudden, that's all we're doing is attacking people, but right. we're not actually doing anything constructive. Mm-hmm. So what can we do? It's exactly what Sarah, Sarah said, that we can stop and say, what actually is happening in a moment? So stop, notice what you're seeing, ask yourself, is this actually a problem? And then if it is a problem, what's the thing that I would like to see different? I don't have to shame the person to say, hey, with a kid who's selling water on the side of the street, I'd like to make sure you're doing it in a way that's hygienic, right? Or whatever it is that your real concern is. Mm -hmm. But to stop and slow down. I think the quick pace of modern life prevents us from slowing down, leaves a lot of us feeling hopeless, and just puts us on this path of attacking. And it seems like whenever there's something that gets people heated, like currently Israel and, and uh, Palestine, we we ramp up to violence really quickly. And on college campuses, you have young people who are just open to learning. And to me, it they all look like uh, opportunities for conversations rather than violence. And, I, and you even had people going before a congressional committee and, and saying talking points rather than saying, you know, at our university, we're going to invite in speakers who give some sort of presentation where kids at school who are open to learning and, and want to be doing the right thing, which is why they're rebelling in the first place. You know, the whole history of the Middle East this is not a situation where there is anything binary, even close to it. It's an extremely nuanced, complex, historically difficult hotspot. So how could but but conversations are complicated. So how do how can we usher in that sort of reaction to a heated moment more readily? Well, one of the things, especially in this conflict that you're describing, it goes back to what you said earlier, that there is so much fear. And I think the way that this conversation is happening in the media is really stimulating people's sense of it's me or them, it's us or them. And so I don't have the time to look at the nuance. So if we can first create a space, I think it's so important to create a space where people can grieve, where people can say, I'm feeling terrified as somebody who's Jewish about what this means for kind of like my safety, the safety of my community. I'm feeling terrified as somebody who's Palestinian who doesn't believe in what Hamas is doing about what this means for my community. So create first the spaces for us to be able to grieve and then to have those nuanced conversations. 
Again, it comes down to slowing down. We can't have this conversation in a five-minute soundbite. It needs to be a conversation where we're able to hear each other's hearts and some of the things that we talk about in the book that we can hold each other with compassion and with authenticity to name the difficult things, to talk about, here's why I feel scared when I hear you say X, Y, or Z. And let's look at that together rather than I immediately put you in the other category. You're, you're so right. And I think on some of the college campuses, some of the, the protests, like uh, uh, they, they, they think they're protesting against Hamas, but they're protesting against Palestinians in general. There needs to be, before you get vocal and violent and loud about your opinion, make sure that you have some of the bullet points of your opinion right. I really think that's what's happening on college campuses. I think kids disagree with the brutality of Hamas, but they're painting Palestinians with a broad brush, and that's where the hurt's coming from. And that's what our media is doing, right? It can't yeah. make sense that our young folks are just kind of looking to the adults around them and saying, well, if the media is saying this and I don't have a really great way to find the truth, I just go with what everyone is telling me is true. And that's part of the tragedy of the times we live in. And you teach that we need to be bringing anger and love into alignment, that they are inter interconnected. Talk about that, if you would. Well, this actually comes from neuroscience. The neuroscience emotions researcher, Jak Panksepp, discovered that if we just turn off our rage, we're actually turning down our entire system's volume. We're turning down the, the, the capacity of our life energy to manage life. Everybody has a rage circuit, but everybody also has a care circuit. And when those two are linked, then what happens is our rage, instead of being destructive or traumatizing, becomes a powerful force for advocacy. Mm -hmm. And when we really link our rage with what we love, like I am angry because I really love the integrity of the Supreme Court, for example. Mm -hmm. That's something I love. I mean, I've always loved it. And I'm just like walking around going with my chin on the ground, going, what's going on here with people buying exactly. expensive gifts for, for Supreme Court judges? How can this be happening? And that, you know, there's rage in me, but there's rage because there's a love of justice and a love of the balancing of the, um, you know, checks and balances uh, that are sort of supposed to be part of our that's a really interesting system. example. Mm -hmm. So there's so much love in me, but there's so much rage in me at the same time. But then it's advocacy and power and not traumatizing and not cruelly destructive. Yeah, the key is to turn your rage into a positivity uh, and not turn it into violence, right? Maybe if you take the element of fear out of that, it's helpful. Well, when you do link it with love, you make rage less scary. That's for sure. And that helps take the element of fear out. It's the same as, you know, what one of my principles is like, tell me, don't tell me what you're against. Tell me what you're for. Mm. So you're angry because you are for parity. You are for democracy. You are for justice. You are for, for the balance of power. And uh, you're angry because that's in danger. So lead with what you're protecting and not... Uh, who who you think is threatening uh, threatening it but you you also talk about Martin Luther King and what he said about the beloved community that we are grounded in our interdependence we are tied in a single garment of destiny 
And although we we all in this room know that that's true, we're also innately competitive. And we te- I think we are innately competitive, but we also teach children, you know, to compete. And especially through sports, you know, that it's like that is a very binary activity. One team loses, the other team wins. And, and fathers and parents, you know, are really judgmental when it comes to how did you perform in your grades or, you know, whatever it is. Mm. So... We, we are competitive, so it's difficult, I think, for folks to know when they need to compete and when they need to cooperate. It's interesting because I think I'm also, like, incredibly competitive. You don't ever want to play a board game with me. <laughs> and, but part of it is that we're – I think competition is fine. It's part of what we enjoy, part of what makes us human. It's just that it's been co-opted, right? So it's not so much that we're competitive, but we've been told over and over and over again, back to that binary frame, that either I win, and if I win, you have to lose. We don't have to sense that, you know, I can win and get my needs met, and you can get your needs met. And I think once we start to show people that that's possible and kind of save the, you know, kind of like the cutthroat competition for the board games, mm. then people will actually be able to see how our interdependence is um, truly linked. And I think the only reason that it works right now that we've bought into this myth of independence is that we told people that, you know, it's, it's kind of opaque. We live in a world where you don't get to see all of the different things that are necessary to get food on your table, to get clothes on your back. It's like I go to a store, I earned the money, I bought it, and we're divorced from all of the other different connections that make all of these things possible. So the more that we can help our youth reconnect to the chain of life that makes what they are living possible, the more likely it is that they'll be able to see our interdependence and rest into it. Sometimes I like to just look around a room and think about how every item arrived there and the different people that were involved in creating this carpeting, these walls, this microphone. It's sort of a miracle, even if you just look at a map and you see interconnected roadways, you know, that this is all this is cooperation this is what this is collaboration this is what life is where we are we require one another and yes. even just looking around a room can remind you of how necessary each and every one of us was i wish that everybody got to sign everything like you see the credits at the end of a movie uh, like what if somebody could just sign your wall and <laughs> sign your house and say <laughs> cuz i'm sure when they drive by they think i built that house <laughs> what's more important than something that keeps us safe and warm. Everybody should autograph everything they do. I was just going to extend that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. It's that once I start to see the people who built my house and built my wall, then I also start to think, wow, if I want another house, that person needs to have a livelihood. That person needs to have food on their table. Mm-hmm. And so we start to see how important it is that we create systems where everybody thrives, even the ones that we don't see. Even if you just think about minimum wage, you know, you should think about whatever money they get will come back around to whatever business or service that you are providing so they have they can they can spend that money especially this time of year think about you know the economy and you know it the, the economy is especially a non-binary fluid uh very living life force that money isn't being poured down a drain it is going to someone who can then spend it or invest it Roxy, I, I want to talk to you about racism before we get too far along, because I, I'm, I'm hope you know this goes back to your comment on systemic racism and things that are inbred into all the systems that we have that run us as a democracy and as human beings. 
But I'll tell you, I'm in a really sad moment about how we're not making much progress. You know, we all had such hope with the election of Barack Obama, and I wept at his inauguration, and I was so happy. But then it was two steps forward and three steps back. The Tea Party came in, and it was absolutely, whether it was a conscious or subconscious reaction to the Obama presidency, this wasn't the America we had bargained for. I just, and then I, I see recently the, the two African American city councilmen in Memphis, or rather Nashville, that it was like, I felt like I was watching scenes from the Civil War down there. It's just awful. So, in your honest opinion, are, are we making headway? Is it possible for us to do away with systemic racism? I have to believe yes, but I also think that we are making headway. And I think part of what's been happening is that the media, and again, <laughs> this time that we live in, there's a very selective airing of all of the harm, all of the hard things that are happening. And that doesn't actually, in my mind, represent the viewpoints of the average person on the street. So when I go into different communities, what I hear are people saying, what's being told in the news doesn't represent me. And like even the people who are voting for someone like Trump, a lot of people are not voting for Trump because they're racist. They're voting for Trump because they've been told only way that you can get your needs met is if you elect someone like him. And we're putting, it's almost like we're putting people in a bind where some people are doing things that are against their best interests because they don't see any other hope. But I actually think that, you know, even the way that our books have been received, when I go talk to people, people are so eager for change. They're so eager for hope. And I think it's true. I think it's there. And we just have to get past the very selective biased news reporting that's happening that's trying to push a certain narrative to get us to vote a certain way. Well, well speaking- what's, what's pushing us forward is... Uh, if people would just take this book and uh, and and allow themselves a little self honesty, it would be very uh, uh, it would be very helpful. We would go for it. You did a great piece of work, both of you ladies. Here, it was really impressive. Very, very, very impressive, commendable, and so useful. And and while you're talking about voting, we have a candidate who's vote who's running for Congress, and she, she's going to join us. So we we do have to uh, wrap things up with you, beautiful ladies. Tell us where. Uh, where folks can get the book and the title of the book once again. Go ahead. We have a book website, uh, antiracistconversations.com, and we have a podcast where we're talking to people who love these ideals and and work for beloved community and are also anti-racist. And though that uh, podcast is called Fierce Conversations. Wonderful. Yeah. It's a nice and piece book- of work. And uh, again, you have to be brave enough to be very honest with yourself to do your workbook. You know, my geology workbook in ninth grade was a lot easier than doing your. <laughs> I thought we heard our editor said this was really hard when he read it. But it but was the book is good. So we invite everyone to read it. It's, Thank it, you for your time. It is well worth doing. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy holidays, ladies. Happy Keep holidays. up the good work. Thank you for having us. Of okay. course. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Laura Friedman is running to succeed Adam Schiff in California's 30th congressional district. She has an extraordinary record of progressive leadership as a state assembly member, a Glendale city council member, and the mayor of Glendale, as well as her community activism in the private sector. Laura has authored meaningful legislation on single-payer health care, affordable housing, and combating climate change. She has achieved results on every progressive issue in California politics. Please welcome Laura Friedman. Hi. Yay. Hey. I'm a witness to the good work she does from local government all the way to the state. 
And you come to politics from the entertainment industry. So I'm wondering which world is populated by more challenging personalities? <laughs> you know what? It's it's pretty equal, I'd say. <laughs> it does attract a similar type of person, I think. And I find that the work is, well, the work is a little bit similar, but I do find that the skills that I developed as a producer to uh, identify uh, projects, to build a team out to inspire people and to have a, a goal set, a goal achieving mentality of getting something done is a skill set that has served me well in the legislature. Yeah, I can well imagine. I love all of your programs. I was a resident of Glendale. I had two houses there, and this is before your tenure as mayor there. But I lived in Royal Canyon, which was right behind that uh, auditorium, which was one of the first places that benefited from you banning gun shows in the city of Glendale. And they had nutbags from all over the state coming in there on the weekend. And I'm raising my little kids, and I was just so thankful when that happened. Thank you. I was really proud to have been able to do that a few months into my first term as a Glendale council member. That gun show had been going on on city property for years, right across the street from our community college and up the block from an elementary school. And it was way past time to not have the city being involved in the selling of weapons. That is uh, truly impressive. And I, what you've kind of like worked your way up in terms of politics and go, I can do this. I think I can do that. I can do that. I think I can do this. And which is really inspiring, um, especially for, for women who want to be in public service. So what if someone wakes up one day and says, you know what? I think I could run for Congress. What's the first thing she needs to do that day? How does it work? Well, for running for Congress, you've got to be able to reach a whole lot of people. So you have to have a already somewhat of an extensive network. You have to be able to have people who want to join your team and help support you. So it's very difficult for candidates, even if they have great ideas, to be successful running for anything at any level without having some sort of base already that they can build off of. You need to have resources. You certainly have to be able to raise money because there's a lot of people out there who don't pay that much attention to politics. They're out working, they're going to school, they're doing their lives. And they literally need someone to knock on their door or send them a piece of mail to even let them know that there's an election and that there's a, an important seat up on the ballot. And you've got to be able to do that as a candidate for your own, for yourself, to get people to vote for you. Especially so now. Like, yeah, especially now remind people about the March primary because people are not used to voting in March, but they need to start thinking about it, correct? Right. The election for the primary this year is March 5th. It's normally in June. So surprise, <laughs> uh, March 5th. And there's a whole lot of important things on the ballot wherever you live, whether you live in the 30th congressional district or somewhere else, there will be a congressional member on your ballot, maybe an incumbent, maybe other people. It might even be an open seat. There'll be in some, in many cases, city council races that are important, state assembly races, ballot measures. There's Proposition 1, which I'm supporting, which is a bond to help fund mental health treatment across the state of California, very desperately needed and to create housing for people who are severely mentally ill and homeless. So there's a lot of stuff for people to pay attention to. You, you mentioned District 30, which is what you're running for, Adam Schiff's district. That's West Hollywood to Pasadena to the Angeles National Forest. This is lots of different socioeconomic groups. What, what are the biggest issues in those areas that you would have to fight from day one? 
They do vary a little bit across the district, but the thing that I hear most about and then the issue that I've worked on most in the legislature is the homelessness and housing affordability crisis. We hear this in every corner of the district. People are very concerned about the number of homeless on the streets, of homeless individuals, of encampments um, for a variety of reasons. But we have this this crisis is really feeling like it's out of control for people. And they want to make sure that whoever that they elect is going to take it seriously and be effective in getting folks off the streets and into housing and get them the support they need. Mm -hmm. The other issue that I do a lot of work on that people are concerned about is global warming and climate change and the impact that that's having on wildfires in California, in extreme heat events that are so deadly to so many people, particularly vulnerable populations like seniors and children water resources that are impacted. It really is having huge effects that we see right now in our lifetime. This is not a crisis that's far in the future. It's a crisis that's unfolding right now. So that's something people are also very concerned about. And lastly, I'd say the widening gap between the rich and poor mm. and a lot of middle-class people feeling that their wages are stagnant, that the prices of everyday goods are getting higher and they can't pay their rent and afford health insurance. So these are all issues that we hear, that I've been hearing for years from people and that I've done legislation successfully and effectively to try to address. But you know, none of these big problems are gonna be solved by any one person. Mm -hmm. If anyone tells you that, be very careful about trusting them. Mm -hmm. They're going to be, these are issues that we have to build consensus over and we all have to start moving in the same direction to solve. Uh, well, all of the issues that you have put your heart and soul in from the time you were a mayor to city council person in Glendale to Sacramento are all issues that affect the entire United States. Uh, the lack of affordable housing, single payer health care, climate change, water management, uh, AB 57, the police getting instructions on how to handle properly hate crimes. These are all issues that are topics of conversation all over the United States. So it would seem to me that you bring your expertise in fighting for those in California to uh, the Congress. To fight for everyone. Yeah. Thanks, Fritz. I, I, I'm not doing this because I think it'll be fun to be flying you know, 12 hours a week. Mm -hmm. uh, it would be a great honor to be in Washington. But honestly, I've got a 10-year-old daughter, Lord. and I worry about her every day. I see the world that she's growing up into. I see the attack on democracy coming from Washington. I, I grew up in South Florida. My mom had me by her side when she canvas for abortion rights, for the ERA. And she thought, and her generation thought, that they had one reproductive you know, choice and autonomy for women, for their daughters and their grandchildren. And we now know that that's not the case and that civil rights are being under threat across the country. And I do this because I couldn't sleep at night if I wasn't working on these issues. I'll bet you don't miss Florida. <laughs> I bet you don't miss Florida now. My family my lives still there. I'll be there starting on Sunday. I'm going to visit my father over the holiday next week. My family lives there. I won't even go down there for severe illness. I say straighten this mess out, and I'll be down. <laughs> How many? But kids? when I was growing up, it wasn't much better. You know. No. Now they have Ron DeSantis. When I was a girl, they had Anita Bryant. Oh my God! I think oh. it's something in the water. Oh, I forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I always see it as like 
they they see themselves as kind of autonomous because they've got ocean on both sides. But like, no, you you're part of the United States. <laughs> How many candidates are running? Just give us like help us understand what's going on. We know that Katie Porter and Adam Schiff are vying for the Senate seats, which means they abdicate their House seats. You know, you've already told us how you stand out, but like, how is it sort of shaping up as we march um, closer to March? Yeah, thank you. So the primaries in in March, and it's an open primary, so it could be two Democrats who make it through to the general. It could be there's two Republicans in the race. It could be one of the Republicans. It's mathematically possible because there's something like ten or eleven Democrats and one into one. Uh, I think uh, Peace and Freedom Party candidate. Um, so the way it's looking is that there are several of us who are um, either currently elected um, uh, elected officials or have been elected officials, um, and there's a whole bunch of people that I don't know who they are. You know, they're just people who put their names on the ballot, and of course that's their right. Uh, but they've not held elected office. They're they're sort of new to this. Uh, so it's a crowded field. Um, I do know that I've represented the bulk of this district. I've represented about 65% of the 30th Congressional District. I've lived in this district since 1992, since I first moved to Los Angeles continuously. I've never lived in anywhere else except for the 30th Congressional District. That is not the case with many of the candidates. Several have moved into the district to run, again, perfectly legal. Um, but we are doing our work. We're out talking to the public. We're canvassing. We're ca phone calling. I've got great volunteers. We're doing events constantly. We have a website, which is lauraforcongress.org. And you can learn more about me on that website. You can volunteer on the website. And I'm really proud to be endorsed by a whole slate of elected officials and important groups. Everyone from our Lieutenant Governor, Eleni Konolakis, to our State Superintendent of Schools, Tony Thurman, our State Treasurer, Fiona Ma, to a whole bunch of city council members and school board members and community college members and community leaders and nonprofit leaders. And then groups like Emily's List and NOW, National Organization for Women, Center for Biological Diversity, League of Conservation Voters, California Environmental Voters, Climate Hawks Votes, and many, many more. So I'm I, I'm very happy that validators of the work that I've done are by my side in this race. And along with IATSE, one of our largest uh, unions here in the district, representing, of course, entertainment industry uh, working people. So, well, about the about the freedom and justice stuff that you talked about before, uh, this is an issue that I just think is so important, uh, but it probably doesn't get the spotlight that it deserves because of the general malaise we're in in the world right now. But you authored uh, AB 2663 to ensure that all domestic partnerships have access to free and equal benefits. That just seems to be one of those things that if the wrong people are in Washington, that might be one of those things post uh, Dobbs that goes away if we don't have people fighting for that stuff in Washington. Absolutely. LGBT rights are just as much on the table and under threat from the Republican Party as abortion rights. Um, they say that this is a state's rights issue, but civil rights should not be a state white state's rights issue. This mm -hmm. is about civil rights. It's about the rights for two couple, two people to be married. It's about what happens to the children of same sex couples who adopt if they are that um, parents, if, if that uh, parental uh, guide, um, parental status is not respected in other states, what that could mean to a child later on. Um, there's so much at stake in this election, voting rights and the Voting Rights Act and 
We see the disenfranchisement of large groups of people across the country through gerrymandering. Um, so there's a lot of things that I consider to be core democratic values that are absolutely under threat. And I believe that our democracy is worth fighting for. I'm a patriot and I believe in this country and I believe in the Constitution. And to me, being able to vote, being able to marry someone you love, raise children, being able to have your core rights um, protected regardless of what gender you are or who you choose to love uh, is you know, fundamental to just basic civil rights and something that this country should protect. Does Does California draw fair districts and how is a population better served when districts are fair? I know you go from Pasadena, which would be conservative, into West Hollywood, which would be uh, more open minded. So if, if you're going to be serving a diverse community, how do you how do you get that done and take care of everybody? Or is there just no way to please every voter? Well, there's never any way to please every voter. Mm -hmm. uh, there's never any way to please everyone in my own household. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's not really about pleasing everybody, but it is about serving everybody. Mm -hmm. So we do draw fair districts. Um, we have an independent redistrict commission across the state of California, which means that politicians can't impact that commission. They're not supposed to. It's against the law, actually. And they go by the Voting Rights Act, and they try to create districts that allow for marginalized communities under the Voting Rights Act to have a chance of representing the, the representative of their choice. And our district, when you look at the 30th Congressional District, it's pretty, pretty much an oval. It's almost an oval shape. Mm. We don't think of it that way in L.A., but if you look at West Hollywood through Hollywood and Silver Lake and Los Feliz and Echo Park and then go over the hills into Glendale and Burbank and up to Sunland Lakeview Terrace and Tahunga, it's 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 not a strange looking district. And it does keep communities whole, communities like Glendale and Burbank and Sunland Tahunga. And then those L.A. neighborhoods like Atwater and uh, Echo Park, they're all kept whole within their council districts. Mm. And then how you represent them, you absolutely are not going to be able to um, ever please anybody. But the way that I look at it is you have to look at where there's the greatest need. You have to look at where you can do the most good. You have to have some vision for what the future of the community looks like, which you should develop, develop in consultation with your community. And that's why that dialogue with community members is so important. Now, we do meet and greets almost every other week in my office. We do meet, uh, sorry, town halls, we do town halls, we bring experts in, and we're always out in the community talking to people because you do start to find ways of understanding the vision of the community and the needs of the community by going into all of the pockets. And there are many pockets in this district. You've got Thai town, you've got horse and equestrian communities, mm -hmm. you've got a lot of immigrant communities and ethnic communities in the district. You've got Hollywood and film studios. They're all coexisting, but they all have slightly different needs. And unless you're out in the district, as I have been for many, many years, you don't really understand how it fits together and where you have to separate out some of those needs and bring different kinds of resources into different pockets of the district. How are your town halls? I mean, we hear these awful stories about how contentious they can be, and there are people that just want to come in there from the opposing party and sabotage your town hall so you don't make any sense. Have you noticed any of that in, in some of your meetings? We have not had a whole lot of that. We've been very, very lucky. Um, I have seen a lot of it happening in Glendale at our school board. Oh. That is where the front lines of... Uh, political opposition in California and probably across the country are playing out. 
with groups like, I think they're called Moms for Mothers for Liberty, right. which seems to be a right-wing front group mm -hmm. uh, involved with the Proud Boys and other extremists who are going into California schools, going into school boards, and uh, trying to challenge our diversity and inclusion curriculums, which are really designed to make sure that all children see themselves and their families represented in the libraries and in the in the textbooks, you know, everybody's history represented accurately so that everyone can see themselves. People don't feel left out. And as much as parents absolutely need to have input into the school system and they need to understand what's being taught and they need to be listened to, um, there's a lot of fear mongering. Uh, these groups are telling parents that their children are being groomed, sexually groomed, oh, it's, it's become so... transsexual uh, or, tra or to have sex change operations, you know, things that are the mom of a child in public school are really outlandish. You know, I, yeah. I'm in all the mommy groups and I know what the moms are talking about. You know, they're talking about too much math homework and not enough aftercare slots. I've never seen my daughter bring home. My daughter's never brought home any sexually explicit material. No. She's never been taught anything inappropriate. And I'm glad that there are textbooks that show same-sex parents, you know, that show children who are gender fluid because she's got people in her school. Yeah, because kids are riding to school in the morning with two parents of the same sex. I mean, exactly. It's, it's, exactly. it's unbelievable. So we, we need to do a better job, certainly, of, of having dialogue with parents so that they understand why materials in schools and school districts should always be able to explain that. And um, uh, there's a lot of scare tactics out there as well. well we and see it's a shame. Yeah, it, we see in California, especially people that live in Los Angeles or San, San Diego or San Francisco, some of the larger markets, we see our diversity as our strength. And we know that there are there can be 30 languages spoken in a middle school in the, in the middle of Hollywood. We, we see that as a strength. But if you flip to Fox News for a moment, for as long as you can bear, that you hear the word hellscape and you hear these very terrifying words regarding California. How can you dispel some of those rumors if folks are listening to us from other states that that we do things very, very well in, in California and people here are, are happy and productive and safe? Absolutely. Um, it, it's still a very desirable place to live, of course. We've got great jobs. The weather's terrific. We've got oceans. People come here all the time. We've got companies that are here because they know that their workforce wants to live in California. And as much as we have challenges, like everywhere else has challenges, we're also not afraid to admit to those challenges and to try to address them head on. And I do believe that our diversity is our strength. Mm -hmm. we, are, we live in a global economy and we draw people from all over the world into California because we are the seat of the creative community, whether it's Hollywood or Silicon Valley. We have people who come here to experience that creativity that stems from our diversity. And because we are multinational in terms of our community, we're also able to create products that are used the world over. And that's what makes us a vibrant and a vital place. And that's what why I chose to live here. That's why so many of us choose to live here. I'm a multi-ethnic, multi-racial family myself. Mm. And I would not want be wanting to raise my daughter who is multiracial, somewhere where she doesn't walk around and see herself reflected mm -hmm. in the skin tones and the faces of people around her that wouldn't be serving her well. And it it, it is that, that, you know, the best of the rest of the world that comes here, you know, in terms of those cultures and those foods that makes it a place that people want to visit from everywhere around the world.
I'm proud of my state. You know, I think Gavin Newsom has been slightly more public about his uh, about his national feelings lately. But I, I, I just I think he's a great representative of uh, of our issues that we find important here in the fifth largest economy in the planet, California. So people should pay attention. I'm really proud of it. We're showing here that you can be environmentally sustainable. Absolutely. You can transition to clean energy. You can care about protecting wildlife and open space. And you can still have a and you can have a state that is so politically diverse. Now, I have worked with Republicans on a lot of my legislation. I've had Republican co-authors and Republican support. I think it shows that you can build consensus as well if you have people that are willing to talk about the issues and how they affect people. You know, when I'm looking at legislation, I don't try to pass something just because it's by a Democrat any more than I would try to pass something just because it benefits Los Angeles. I've done bills that have helped protect California's wild and scenic rivers, protect our deserts, um, preserve wildlife up and down the state. And I've done it in conjunction with Republican members of the California legislature. And that's not something to be ashamed of. And I think we need more of that spirit in Washington. And we also in California do stand by our values. And so I, it's it's not that we need to you know, bend to extremists around the country, but I think it's that we need to go directly to the people around the country. I grew up in South Florida. I go there and there are people there who care about a lot of the same things we care about in California. But like you said, Fritz, they're not always hearing that because they're watching media that's not showing them Mm -hmm. the good things. It's Mm -hmm. only showing the bad things. So we need to have kind of a better way of communicating with folks all around this country and with our colleagues who make her policymakers. Because at the end of the day, we can't have Congress be dysfunctional. We have to have a functional federal government if we're going to have a functional nation. Let, let me ask you, uh, that's yeah. so 100% true. Let me ask you a question about how the House of Representatives work. You go and there are, I don't know, a dozen more uh, uh, Congress people from the state of California. When does your obligation go from the 30th Congressional District to what's good for the state and then what's good for the country. I mean, do you and all of your fellow Congress people from the state ever get together and sort of vote as a block for what's good for the state? Well, in the legislature, we often do look, of course, we're always looking at what's good for the state. The laws that we pass, except for, you know, there's a few bills that sometimes are district specific, but in general, the laws have, they take uh, effect across the whole state. So you've got to make sure that what works in California, in Los Angeles will work in Fresno when you're passing a statewide bill. Mm-hmm. And that's why a lot of times the bill that we introduce on day one looks different when we pass it on day 70 uh, or when it's signed into law. Because we do take input, of course, from stakeholders all across the state of California. We want to make sure that everything that we do will work for everybody and be beneficial to everybody. How, how is your stance on issues different or similar to those of Adam Schiff? Well, I think our focus is a little different. And, you know, I I think the world of Congressman Schiff and what he has done to stand up for democracy and hold power accountable at the very highest level is should be a model for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's been unafraid and he is also very rational and he's a lawyer. And when he speaks, it's not from the perspective of an ideologue. It's from the perspective of a patriot who cares deeply about the rule of law. I'm not going to be Adam Schiff because I'm not a lawyer and I'm not going to Washington to be the person 
to hold Trump accountable or single-handedly save democracy. I'm an environmental leader, and I'm a policymaker who focuses a lot on climate and has passed some of the most meaningful legislation around sustainability in the state of California, and that's in means in terms of the whole nation. And my goal is to save the planet and to also save democracy. I think our focus is different. I focus on things that I think are really important to young people in Los Angeles, like public transportation and building out our public transportation systems so that it's we can move around in a way that's safer and more equitable and also have the housing that we need for everyone so that we can bring housing prices down so that more young families can afford to purchase a home and that people that are working people can afford to rent something and not be crippled by the cost of that rent. So my focus has been different in the legislature, and I think it will be different in Congress. What committees would you love to sit on? I definitely want to serve on transportation, on energy, on all of the, the committees that deal with the, the infrastructure that's going to make us truly sustainable and build jobs at the same time. I definitely want to serve on committees that will help protect civil rights and you know, one day to get abortion in the in the U.S. Constitution, abortion and reproductive rights. So we have a lot we have a lot to do. And, you know, I'll also say that this district's never been represented by a woman. And I you know, when abortion rights are on the table, it's going to be women who are going to lead on that fight. The fight that my mother was so involved in when she was my age, the fight that she thought she had won. It's, you know, I think it's going to be the daughters and the granddaughters of that generation that are going to finish that fight. That, um, that issue may now. save us in November. <laughs> that may be the issue that saves us in November. It's so far it's the peop- the, the issue that's activated the most emotion in well, the in the voter base. Some folks only vote when they are like personally impacted, and that's what what I call a peace of mind vote. And this is certainly a peace of mind vote to wake up every morning not knowing whether or not you're pregnant and what you would do if you were, mm-hmm. or what you would do in this in this state if the pregnancy went wrong. Uh, those are peace of mind issues, and th- those drive folks to the polls so they should and they should way too important to to not it's way too important to stay home people have got to vote Mm -hmm. our democracy depends on it it's it's the most important responsibility that we all have in terms you know participating in our democracy and safeguarding our democracy that's why i really appreciate your podcast and your show and you're getting you know educating people about what's happening and about civics well, thank you so much. We just really enjoyed having you with us. Remind us when Election Day is and it, everybody can vote by mail, correct, even during the primaries? March 5th, everyone will have a mail-in ballot. Okay. Everybody should have a mail and you can go on lavotes.net. You can go to the Secretary of State's website. You can check your voter registration, make sure it's correct. Don't wait until it's too late. And even if for some reason something happens the day of, of the actual election, you can still vote with a provisional ballot on March 5th. Well, I'm here to tell you, you you have proven yourself uh, from local politics to statewide, and you do a great job, and you have your work cut out for you, so get some rest. Thank you both. It's really, really wonderful to be here, and thanks so much for the encouragement and for the opportunity.
Great we love to talk to you, We Laura. love talking with you. Hope you come back. Thank you it so will. much. Okay, here come our closing credits. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at Media Path Pod, and on Facebook, where our show page is Media Path Podcast, and our Facebook group is Media Path with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. Please subscribe. You can write to us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoy the show, please give us a nice rating wherever you get your podcast and talk about us with a loved one under the mistletoe. It is a new holiday tradition. You can sign up for our spicy newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com, where you can also browse through and listen to and or watch every episode of our show while enjoying photos, our newsletter, and a cookie. You will need to bring your own cookie. We want to thank our guests, Roxy Manning, Sarah Payton, and Laura Friedman. Our team includes producer Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, Garrett Arch, Chris Baldwin, Jordan Reyes, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Blanker, here with Fritz Coleman. Be well and wise, and we will see you along the media path. We're going to just pose for a photo with you, so hold on for a moment while we stand here.